Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. And I agree with his point of view. And the greater the length, while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project Podcast is sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, Incorporated. A not-for-profit charity established in Western Australia in 2012 by myself, Joe Milios. I was really concerned that men diagnosed with prostate cancer weren't really getting the support and mateship that they probably needed, particularly when they were confronted with things like incontinence, erectile dysfunction, and of course the C word, cancer. So I literally had the opportunity to set up an exercise program. Um, It was meant to be the outcome or the Uh, the goal of my um, PhD studies but in the end uh, I found out it was going to take seven seven years to produce some results so I decided to set up a little exercise program um, before I even started uh, the research. So PROST means to your health and I learned about the word PROST on my Kentucky tour in uh, 2000, no what am I saying, in 1989 when I was just 18 years of age. So PROST means to your health and we're delighted that the PROST exercise program in Western Australia is about to go global um, by having it available online in the month of November. So big thanks to the board and chair of the PROST program for allowing us to have PROST as the Penis Project podcast sponsor. This week, we are going to discuss adult circumcision. First, we speak to Dr. Stephen Adams, a GP with a special interest in sexual medicine, and then we talk to Patsy, a young man who recently had a circumcision and will share his reasons for having it done and his experience. We hope you enjoy it. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Stephen Adams, who's a GP with a special interest in men's sexual health. How long have you been working in the field? Good morning. I've been working in the field for about 35 years. Great. You need to speak up a little bit, Stephen, because otherwise you're very quiet, which is very unusual for Stephen because normally he's very noisy. Uh, Well, it depends on the microphone. So (laughs) if I'm speaking clearly now, uh, hi, Melissa. I've been a GP for 35 years and a a special interest and experience in sexual health for about 30 years. Great. And so today I really wanted to ask you about adult circumcision because later on we're going to talk to a young man who's in his 20s and he's just been circumcised and we're going to talk to him about his own reasons. So I was really wondering from you how often you see this and what are the main reasons that adults would have a circumcision? Well, really there's only one medical indication for circumcision and that's phimosis. And phimosis means a, a tightening of the opening of the foreskin and preventing retraction of the foreskin, which causes pain and sometimes can cause obstruction. Circumcision is very controversial, 
and some people will still come saying that they want a circumcision for cosmetic reasons or because they've t been told that sexually it's better, but there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And so there are medical reasons and then there are social or religious reasons for circumcision, but the only medical indication really um, is phimosis. And so if an adult guy came to you and said, look, I just don't like the way it looks, I just don't want this hat on my snake anymore. What would you do? Would you refer them on or would you try and talk them out of it? Or what, no, what would I, your approach be? Okay. I think the, the reason for that is that, as with a lot of things sexual, most people are getting their experience from pornography. Most pornography comes from the States and most men in the States are circumcised. Yeah. So by definition, most porno penises, if you like, are larger than average and circumcised. And so that makes men who are not circumcised or of a normal size anxious and self-conscious. So often all they need is reassurance about what is normal and what is normal function. Yeah, okay. And then have you found any differences in people's sexual preferences, whether or not they'd like to be circumcised or not? No, as I say, they have actually looked into this in terms of sexual pleasure for the man or the woman mm -hmm. if there's a heterosexual um, relationship, and there's no difference in either between having circumcision or not circumcision. Um, men who are recently circumcised, the, the head of the penis, the glands, um, is obviously not used to being exposed and tends to be a little bit more sensitive, but that's not necessarily a, a positive thing. It can be quite difficult. Um, and men who are circumcised for life, you know, have always had that, so they've never experienced a foreskin. There was a movement a few years ago for people wanting to get their foreskins put back on again, <laughs> um, and uh, because there was some, some uh, idea that the movement of the foreskin on and off the head enhanced your sexual pleasure. But again, the evidence is neither way. I actually had a look online and you can buy all sorts of weird and wonderful contraptions that you can put on to stretch the skin that's on the shaft over the head and all that. And I found two studies, one which asked for men's subjective views, where they said whether or not before and after circumcision they had better sexual pleasure and sensitivity. And the guys said that they did. But then when they actually did a proper test and they measured it with proper equipment, there was no difference at all in sexual pleasure or sensitivity. So that's kind of a bit of an urban myth, I yeah. think, by the sound of it. The most common thing is also about if a young person, um, if his father was circumcised or if there's not a father figure in the home, then how to handle a foreskin is never taught. Mm. So young men are not taught to retract the foreskin, to clean underneath, do normal hygiene and so on and so forth. So sometimes when I examine somebody who comes in complaining of, of not being able to retract or pain with retraction, when you look at the penis, it's never been retracted. Mm. So, so there's horror um, when I say, well, let's just put it off the head and see what's underneath. <laughs> and it's almost like, oh, my God, you know, you, you're going to pull the thing off. So, so often it's about education, mm -hmm. and if there is tightness there, sometimes you can tell at a glance this is, there's no way anything other than circumcisions is going to fix this. But often attention to hygiene, treatment of possible dermatitis or infection, and then progressive stretching um, done by the, by the, the patient will, will mean that the circumcision is not necessary. Yeah. You know? So we always treat those things in the first instance rather than keep them, away, keep them away from the surgeon, if you like, unless it's absolutely necessary. And so what age should a boy be able to roll back his foreskin on his own? You shouldn't attempt to, to retract the foreskin under the age of four, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it remains adherent until six. 
but certainly by six, the, 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 the foreskin should be able to be retracted and should be retracted to wash and, and, and so on and so forth. I have a funny story about this that my son will probably never forgive me for telling, but when he was about five, he discovered that he could pull his foreskin back and um, I remember him one day, his godmother came round to visit and he was most excited to tell her that he actually had two penises and she was like, what are you talking about? And he rolled back, he said, look, there's one. And then he rolled back his foreskin and another one popped out. And he was like, and there's another one. <laughs> and he was like so excited about it. And I apologise to my son out there if he ever listens to this and knows I've told that story to yeah. everybody. But, yeah, very exciting when you discover that what's hiding underneath, I think, for a young man. Yeah. Um, it's, it's The history of circumcision is actually fascinating. Um, and the, if you look around the world at the different instances, there's huge variation and what's interesting is that in countries where doctors are paid to do circumcisions and patients are paid by insurance companies to receive money for that, it continues in a high rate because it's a vested interest to do it. In countries where there's no um, payment there, um, there's a, unless there's a medical indication, the rates are far, far lower. Um, and so historically, as I say, in the States has one of the highest uh, levels of in the non-Muslim world. Um, but other than that, religious um, reasons in the Muslim and the Jewish community date back obviously hundreds of years. Um, but in the Christian um, teachings, um, sacrifice enough was made by Jesus being put on the cross. So therefore, the advice was that you therefore don't need to to give your foreskin as some sort of uh, archaic <laughs> offering uh, to the offering, god. Because <laughs> that's what it was originally. Yeah, it was okay. Basically, it was a, an offering to the gods. I give you my foreskin as penance. And that's how it remains in the Muslim and Jewish right. um, teaching. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah and then it became, it was out of fashion until the late 1900s when anesthesia and surgery became back fashionable. Mm -hmm. And it became fashionable to have it done. And, and all the wealthy people had it done. And it was the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, interestingly, in the early 20th century, it was thought that that having a foreskin might save men from masturbating too much or being sexually uh, promiscuous, and, and it was all about hygiene and propriety and, and, and saving yourself, you know, be this clean, virginal person ready for marriage. Yeah. Um, so it took on that fashion, yeah. um, and it's continued that way, in, in particularly in, in white and black American um, culture. The Hispanics are about 50%, but mm -hmm. it's about 80% in white and black. Americans. Yeah, well, it's about twenty percent in Europe. It was interesting because I've been reading a book that's written about penises mm -hmm. from an English guy, and he's all in his book. It's all pro not having it done. Mm -hmm. And then there's another urologist in America who's written a good, great book on penis problems, but his chapter on circumcision is all pro. So one of the things he brings up is, and this is very controversial from what I can gather, is that having a foreskin gives you more susceptibility to getting STIs, or sexually transmitted diseases. Um, but there is research for and against both of those. What, what do you think about that? Well, so that um, came to light in the 1990s. There was a particular study that showed that in Africa, um, there was actually a 50% reduction in, in heterosexual transmission of HIV um, in men who had been circumcised compared to men that weren't circumcised. Um, and, and certainly there is other studies that show, for example, that rate of penile cancer is higher in men that haven't been mm. circumcised, and penile cancer is thought to be due to HPV, to genital wart virus. So there's no doubt that there is an association. 
but it seems that the association is more to do with penile hygiene rather than the presence or absence of a foreskin. Mm -hmm. So if the foreskin has never been retracted and you're not circumcised, then yes, bugs can get trapped and transmitted. Whereas if, if somebody has good hygiene, I don't think in, in, a, in a, um, somebody who has good hygiene and good personal practice, I don't think anybody's shown that there's a difference in transmission. Um, it was just all dates back to that study. Right. But then that was then jumped upon by those people who were encouraging it for religious reasons or financial reasons. There we are, we told you so, we were right all along. Yes. Um, and then therefore that's given us another 20 years of, of, uh, uh, of reason to recommend circumcision. Yeah, okay. And so in an ideal world, for all the guys who are listening that have a hat on their snake or a turtleneck or whatever it is, um, how should they look after it? What should they do every day? I'll just to add to that, we used to call them cavaliers and roundheads because I come from, from England. Um, but in terms of looking after your foreskin, it's important to clean under and around the head of the penis. But it's also important to try and avoid using soap in that area. Mm -hmm. Just as a woman shouldn't use soap in and around the vagina, it's preferable just to use water or possibly a moisturising cream. Um, probably to retract um, when you've had a pee and certainly in the shower or whatever, just to give it a bit of a rinse around, just to stop matter and, and accumulating under the foreskin. Um, there's, a, there's a secretion called smegma, um, which uh, is a sort of white cheesy substance that if you don't wash will accumulate and that can aggravate dermatitis and can harbour bugs and, and be um, add to poor hygiene and so on. And as a side note, this is something that I see in practice a bit. If you have a female patient who gets, you know, recurrent candida or thrush, as more commonly known, and she has a partner with a foreskin, do you recommend that the partner treats under his foreskin with the thrush cream as well? Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that it actually makes a huge difference whether the man has a foreskin or not. Mm -hmm. However, there are some men who seem to get and harbour candida, just as there are some women. So if there is a couple where, yes, each time they have sex, they tend to do it, I'll often say to both of them that why didn't you put some cream on the morning after the night before? And that seems to be quite a useful intervention to prevent passing it backwards and forwards. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about foreskins or cavaliers and roundheads. <laughs> and um, I'm sure we'll speak to you again because I'll ask you some more information about other topics as we go along. My pleasure, Melissa. Thank you very much. You should stop making that noise for a minute then all of me would be yours. There's layer on layer of people and sound whining. Okay, so today we have got Patsy. Um, so Patsy is here. He's a 21-year-old man who has recently had an adult circumcision about eight weeks ago, do we think, Patsy? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so we're going to talk to him today about why he made the decision to have this and what the problem was. So tell us when you first decided that you didn't like having a turtleneck on your snake. Um, <laughs> um, but since I sort of started using it, it was always quite tight in, yep. and it was just not comfortable to really do much with it with myself or with other people or anything like that. Yeah. So how old were you when you noticed that? Um, probably 15, 16. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't really like it. So I wanted to sort of make it a bit more comfortable. Um, yeah. So you didn't like the pain or you didn't like the way it looked? A bit of both, really. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, was your dad circumcised or not? Yes, I think. So had you ever seen any other uncircumcised penises? 
Um, I had a couple of sexual interactions with other men at the time when I was sort of 16, 17, and then that did broaden my horizons. And they were uncircumcised? Some of them were, some of them were, yeah. Yeah, okay. And that's when you decided that you preferred the look of an uncircumcised penis? Yeah, and that's when I knew that mine wasn't functioning as smoothly as other people's as well. So yeah. that's when I sort of realised it's a bit too tight. Sorry. So, yeah, so I think it was a bit too tight because if I remember when I first met you, it only kind of, you could just get a, like, centimetre peak of the head, couldn't you, yes. when you pulled it back? Yeah. And was it always like that or had that got worse over time? Uh, I'm pretty sure when I started going through puberty it got a bit worse, but I, I don't really remember much before so this that is anyway. So this is an interesting question because when, when we have young patients with um, pyronies as well, it's like... You don't really know anything about what your natural curvature or shape might be with an erection until you actually start getting them at mm. like 13, 14. So uh, if you can remember, or even 12, 11, can, if you can remember, Patsy, from right when you first recall any sort of um, full erections, was it something that bothered you or was it more something that you learnt about through your interactions with other men? Um, because... It was something I learnt about with other men, obviously, because I had never seen one prior to that, so I didn't really have a comparison, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does so make I sense. I thought it was yeah. more normal. You thought it was normal until yeah. then. And was it painful? Like, So when you first started masturbating and that was tight at the end, was there like a constrictive painful feeling or that was normal? You just thought that was normal for you? Um, I don't recall there being pain, but if there was, I would probably just assume I thought it was normal. Yeah. It, more so recently when I started to be a bit more sexually active, mm -hmm. it started to hurt a lot more. Yeah, okay. And how difficult was it? Because I'd actually seen you for a, as a patient for lots of other reasons beforehand, so it was actually quite difficult for you. How long, It took you three years, I think, before you actually raised that issue with me. So was it difficult for you to ask someone about that? Or? Um, it took me a while to get there because I have a couple of confidence issues. Um, it did, and it sort of really, you don't really know how to ask the question because it's a bit of a weird one. I remember how you asked me. You came into my office and I had that great big knitted penis on the shelf and you said, why have you got that? And I was like, oh, because that's what I'm interested in. It's my specialty is penises. And you were like, oh, good, can I ask you about mine? Oh, <laughs> wow, it was your lucky day. Yes. <laughs> so, then, so then when you were, like, becoming sexually active and that's, that physmosis was, so which is the foreskin that was stuck, it wouldn't roll back yeah. all the way, was it painful then? Uh, not, not to start with, but obviously the more I started sort of, engaging in sexual intercourse and the more I used it the more it started to not that it was getting tighter but because I was using it more it sort of the skin would split and cut and it would just oh. be like a whole yeah mm. that's right scenario so when we when you first showed it to me we tried a cream which yes. was a steroid cream and how did that go um I was optimistic about it but it didn't really work as well as we thought it would no, it um didn't. There wasn't really much, if any, improvement there. Can you explain the rationale behind the cream? Yeah, so the idea of using a steroid cream is when the you've got the physmosis, it's really tight around the end, it gets really inflamed and yeah. kind of meaty and, and it gets a bit dermatitis-y because things get mm. underneath it and you can't roll the skin back to yeah. clean. Yeah. So you get like this dermatitis and scar tissue. So the idea of using the cortisone cream is it's supposed to soften it up 
And and it, I have seen it work, but it did soften it a little bit, didn't it? But so what would the recommendation is that an application like once or twice a day for once, a period of time yeah. or forever? Or? One, no, once a day for a couple of months and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you need to move to the next stage. Okay. So, um, and the other thing I want to know is as a child, were you ever able to roll the roll your foreskin back to clean under it or you were never told? As a... As a child, I, I was able to because I remember, obviously, cleaning myself in the shower as a kid. So yep. I remember being able to do that fine and there were no issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sort of just happened once I started puberty and things sort of grew. Um, yep. And then I guess, yeah, that's when it sort of started. And how common is, you know, the, the phimosis in... Young men. Or? It's not. I don't, actually don't know the stats, and I should have found that out before we talked tonight. Well, I'll just. Do that <laughs> I'll look into that right now while we have. But a chat. it's not common. I've probably seen in the last twelve months. I've seen three people with that issue, and I'm seeing people with penis problems all day long. So it obviously isn't a very large problem. Unless they're not talking to us about yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Well, be the maybe case. they're not just saying. And after this tonight, because mm-hmm. you, Patsy, are telling us all about it, I'm going to get a rush of people with constricting penile ends. So in the end, you decided that you wanted to do something more permanent about this, didn't you? And you decided you wanted to have a circumcision. Was that mainly from a functional issue or an issue that you didn't like the way it looked or both? Um, Because we had tried the steroid cream and that didn't work and it was sort of a couple of months and I sort of wanted an immediate issue, like an immediate solution to the issue. Um, And then there was... Because it was so tight and I couldn't really do much with it, obviously I didn't really like the look of it because it just didn't work Mm -hmm. um, as well as it should have. So I think it was a mix of both, but mainly functionality. Yeah. And what about balantitis? Did did the actual ballooning, that sort of under the skin occur with you? Because in my experience, that's something that I've come across a couple of times with patients. They talk about the uh, affected area basically ballooning and flaming so much. Yeah, I have seen that. Physically being uncomfortable. You didn't have that. It hadn't got to that stage. That's usually quite far down the track. Okay. And so what – and there was also another thing you didn't like about the way it looked because there was a a bit of anxiety about that. You were thinking if you were going to get your foreskin removed and have a circumcision, you would also wanted to deal with that other thing. Yes. So the little frills underneath the head of the penis – Um, that was always something I was very self-conscious about and I always thought that was just a side effect of not being able to clean under the foreskin properly or whatever. Um, But then after speaking to you about it, realised that was a separate issue and I just... um, I was just never really a fan of it, obviously, Mm. because I had always correlated that to being part of the issue. Yes, exactly. result of the issue, so I think... That's probably why I was quite adamant on having them removed when I also had the circumcision done as well. Yeah, so just to explain for people listening, frills are like these little rudimentary kind of skin tags that sit around the glands or the head of the penis and they're actually very normal and they're supposed to be there and I actually often see men, young men particularly come in and say, think they've got like warts or something like that and they're actually a very normal thing that occurs not everyone has them and women also sometimes have frills in the opening of their vagina Mm. um so they're actually really normal but they were something that really bothered you weren't they so you went decided to go off and have the circumcision and what was the procedure to get that done um what did we have to do to get you there we we did look at going um 
publicly. Um, but that process, because I had tried the cream and I sort of wanted an immediate issue, we just decided to go privately. Um, and then that sort of simplified the process a little bit. It was just a matter of booking an appointment with the urologist. Um, and then from the initial consultation, um, booking in the surgery after that and then and then having it all done. And were you anxious about having the surgery? Um, I was. And that was purely because I wasn't sure what the recovery period would be like, because mm. um, it is quite a big change, a big shift in things for a little bit during the recovery period. Um, and I was just a bit anxious about that as well. Can I ask, did you have to do any dressing or bandaging of the penis? Um, after the surgery? After the surgery. Yes. Um, not bandage it myself, but I did have to clean it and sort of take the bandage off myself as well which was a bit of a bit of a process and what was the recovery time like how long were you out of action and uh I took two weeks off work um just to sort of simplify the process a little bit which I think was probably a good good thing to do was that length of time enough do you feel um I think for me personally it's probably different for everyone else I found it to be quite a generous amount of time I think after a week and a half I was able it wasn't as sensitive as it was straight after the surgery um and most of a fair bit of the stitches had already dissolved a little bit as well so I think it was a really good good starting point I probably wouldn't have gone with any less time but I think I was quite fine with two weeks and what was the pain like post-surgery um there wasn't, surprisingly, I thought it would have been really painful. There wasn't a lot of pain. Um, there was a little bit of discomfort. It was mostly discomfort. Um, and then, obviously, having a big bandage somewhere where there's not usually one is also a bit of a, <laughs> a bit poor of little experience mummy. too. <laughs> um, so it was more just, it was really sensitive. Um, and occasionally it would bleed a little bit, which was a bit worrying at times. But otherwise, there wasn't really a lot of pain afterwards it was mm-hmm. more just discomfort and the stitches are they all dissolvable or did you have to go back to the urologist too they were all dissolvable oh excellent yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and what about the first time you did a wee after the surgery how did that feel i was a little bit scared <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was actually done at the hospital because you have to go to the bathroom um before is it day procedure yes or? yes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i think i went in about six o'clock and i think i was out by about three o'clock so it was reasonably quick um, but the first time I went to the bathroom, um, I urinated fine. All of that was good. Um, but then it started bleeding, which is, is normal, but I didn't know that was normal. So I started freaking out. So you rang me? Um, yes, <laughs> I did. Um, but that, that was all normal. Yeah. So yeah. it was a little bit anxious to, cause obviously you're not sure if you're going to be able to pee fine or not. Cause they ask you to, when you sort of panic a little bit. Um, but it was fine. And what about now? Eight so, weeks later. Mm, what is? Are you happy with it? I am quite happy with it. It's still a bit sensitive, which obviously means that when I'm doing, engaging in sexual activities, it's a little bit more enjoyable. Um, but I'm assuming that will probably die down a little oh, bit. Oh, so you feel go. like it's more sensitive than it was before? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's because, obviously, previously I could never get the foreskin back enough oh. to really... Yeah. So that's a bit of a positive bonus, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's mm. great. So you've obviously used it, because when I saw you last time, you hadn't used it yet. Yes. And it's yeah. all working exactly how it should it be. Is. It is definitely a lot better, a lot more positive experience. Um, 
That's that fantastic, shape. isn't it? And do you yes. feel better about the way it looks? Because, you know, aesthetics are important to you. So um, there's still, I spoke with the surgeon um, probably a week before I went and saw you previous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said that it would take probably a full nine to 12 months for the stitches to like fully go down. Mm-hmm. But otherwise I'm quite happy with it. Yep. There's just a few little ridges from the stitches, but that's normal. Yep. And that'll settle down. Yes. Is, is there anything else that you think men who are contemplating this type of surgery should consider, think about, worry about? It um, took you three years. So, you know, what what was going on in that time? I'm, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that this is a whole bit easier conversation for men mm. by you coming along, Patsy, and helping us. I recognize this. The yeah. thing I was most concerned about concerned about was the recovery period. Yeah. Because generally when you're going or considering surgery your first instinct is to sort of Google yeah. Google what it's like. Um and the recovery period, especially from what you read online, can seem a little bit um daunting, long winded and a bit unenjoyable in terms of sexual experiences obviously because you can't use it for a certain amount Mm. of time and what was that time that the surgeon recommended um the surgeon recommended i think he said about two weeks before to start experimenting and seeing how the healing process goes about Um, four weeks two 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 weeks weeks. and then if if the stitches are fine and it's healed and obviously then then continue otherwise if you start experimenting with it and it's just not it's still a little bit painful, then he said to give it another two weeks and then try again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a little bit of a annoying part of the recovery process specifically, was that you sort of can't really do much with it for Oh, I've got something I meant to ask you, which I forgot. What happened when you got, like, your nocturnal erections, you know, in that period of healing time? Did it hurt? Um, or did you feel pulling or anything like that? Occasionally you would wake up in the morning and obviously if you woke up with an erection it would hurt a little bit, um, but otherwise it's not, it's more, like I said, it's more uncomfortable than it is painful. Mm-hmm. Um, like it doesn't feel like it's pulling, um, it's just sort of, it's there and it's a really sensitive and it's rubbing on everything and it's more of just an uncomfortable situation than it is painful. So now it feels more sensitive on the head or on mm. the glands. Does it feel more sensitive like when you're just wandering around and it's hanging free in your jocks and things or? Um, occasionally you do notice that, but I really haven't been paying attention <laughs> because when I'm working on stuff, I'm not really thinking about it. So I sort of just <laughs> ignore it. But I find that with, loose clothing where everything is moving a bit more you tend to sort of feel yeah. that it's a bit more sensitive but if you're wearing sort of quite tight clothing you don't really tend to notice because everything's more held in place I suppose. Hmm. Have you got any other questions Jo? Um, I was just um, really curious to find out the uh, general background and it's actually completely normal to have phimosis of that type of skin mm. up mm. until about three years of age in um, newborns to young children, as uh, my little bit of reading um, has exposed. I actually had a patient about two years ago who was on the public waiting wait system service. Uh, he was waiting 12 months for his circumcision and his skin started to degrade. So he started to get um, sclerosis, some sort of um, lichens. He got derm- lichen sclerosis. Lichen sclerosis, yeah. And um, he'd been to the doctor and was having the cortisone treatments, but he was 
it was actually too painful for him to have sex. Mm. And he was getting married and he um, had to actually read, a, read somewhere um, about my work with the ultrasound therapy in Peyronie's disease. And he actually contacted me and I said, look, I've never actually um, provided ultrasound for this, but it makes sense to just try and soften the skin and reduce some of the inflammation. And um, he actually continued to come see me once a fortnight. And we actually found that it was a really helpful way of just softening up the tissue. And then I got him to do some gentle massaging, stretching himself, which prior to the ultrasound therapy had not actually been possible. And he just said it was a management tool while he was waiting. And then he ended up having his um, circumcision about um, probably four or five months after I first met him. But he did let me know that it had been really helpful to have that ultrasound therapy in between time. Mm. So that's just for anyone out there listening. Um, it's not a standard yeah, practice certainly not in physiotherapy I have now had two patients that I've done that with and um, it's just the suffering we don't we know that pain is abnormal so if you start to get pain then you've got to go get things checked out sooner and that's whatever it might be because generally we can start the healing process sooner and it will often lead to less scar tissue and less time of sexual activity and all sorts of things if if the problem itself, like Peroni's disease, as we we're talking about in another podcast, um, is picked up so sooner. Just one more question and we'll let you go, Patsy. But the cost. So you don't have private health insurance, no. but you chose to have this surgery and go private because you didn't want to wait yes. for the time frame, which is reasonable because the waiting list at the moment is in excess of a year. Um, so what was the cost like? Like out of pocket, how much did it cost you to go and have all this done, do you think? Um, I think in total it probably would have been close to about three grand. Yeah. Um, well, maybe two and a half. I think three grand was sort of a rough first estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most expensive part was probably the hospital. Yeah. Um, so we did it at Hollywood Hospital. Uh, which I think was about 1600 mm-hmm. And then the urologist, I think, um, charged about 500 And then it was similar pricing for the anesthesiologist as yeah. well. And did you get back from much back um, from Medicare for that? I think I got about $75. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, because it's not considered yeah. necessary. Which what, is, even when it's medically painful, nah, medically st- diagnostic, and you get skin necrosis and all sorts of things, are you... Serious? Unless you go through the public system and that's why the waiting list that's is That's why it's so... a 12-month wait list. So, mm. okie dokie. So, one of the things that's really um, important for us in producing these podcasts is to try and, I say, re-establish some gender equality because um, we have had patient after patient after patient come to us. Um, now that we're not just talking about medical things in, in the medical context, there's a lot of disparity between the sort of services um, available um, for men versus women and... Uh, I've just got this feeling that men haven't been jumping up and down demanding a little bit more for themselves. So uh, hopefully these sorts of conversations will spark a little bit of interest through through even people listening, um, governments and um, health authorities where, you know, we've got, we've got some serious issues for guys and, and we need to address them with a lot more um, compassion. And do you have anything to add? No, but I think um, that is exactly what we're trying to do is just get it out there that men have problems too and not just women and we need to talk about them and I think we need to get some funding for these issues. And have you got anything else that you think men might like to know about this that you haven't suggested? Um, I think we've pretty much covered it all really. Great. Um, 
Yeah. Is there anything you would change now that you've actually had the procedure? Do you wish you'd gone it sooner or you're quite happy with the way it all worked out? I wish I had done it sooner. Um, Instead of, obviously, because the steroid cream and things didn't work, I sort of wish we had done it then. Then it just would have sped the whole process up. But I'm quite, I'm not unhappy with the time that I did it. Um, I'm just glad I didn't have to wait um, sort of nine to 12 months to do it publicly and then I went privately because it's really helped speed everything up. Well, the good news is the average Australian man lives to 80. So you've got another 60 years at least. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Well, thank you so much, Patsy, for coming in. My pleasure, as we, always. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you. We hope, I'm sure that what you've told us today is going to help other men in the same situation. Yes, I hope so. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Patsy. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there. Dr. Joe here. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We aim to release one podcast per fortnight, so please keep in touch so you know when new podcasts are being released. Also, be sure to check out the show notes below so that we can all keep the conversation going. Of warm afternoons, campfires and bars, smoking bark in a cubby up a tree. Try to ignore fading of the light. We don't want to go home so soon.